Welcome to Hustle Up's The Big Break, where we talk to showrunners, directors, executives, and other talented people working in the entertainment industry about how they got their start and what they've done to fast forward their creative careers. I'm H. Schuster, the founder and CEO of Hustle Up, and today I'm breaking it down with accomplished film and TV producer Monica Levinson, known for a wide range of projects from Borat to Trial of the Chicago 7. Join us for this episode of Hustle Up's The Big Break. Monica Levinson is an incredibly accomplished film and TV producer who's worked in a variety of genres from the critically acclaimed drama trial of the Chicago 7 to the blockbuster comedy Borat. Monica's productions have received both popular and critical acclaim, including Borat's subsequent movie film, Wander Darkly, Trial of the Chicago 7, Trumbo, Captain Fantastic, Bruno, Zoolander, and many others. Recently, Monica co-directed her first feature, a documentary about her own family that she also produced called The Stories of Us. I saw an early screening of this film at CAA and have become mildly obsessed with Monica's amazing family. Uh, And I highly recommend everybody go see this film with your parents, your siblings, your extended family. Monica is an executive committee member of the producers branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science and a member of the Producers Guild of America and the Directors Guild of America. She's also an executive board member of Women in Film and a dedicated advocate for diversity and inclusivity in the film industry. She's established a training program for underrepresented groups on the films she produces, regularly mentors emerging filmmakers, and is a member of Hustle Up. She's also a longtime friend, and I'm super excited to talk about all the cool stuff you've produced and the new stuff you're producing now. Welcome, Monica Levinson, and thank you so much for breaking it down with us today. That's our that's our, our studio audience. Well, first off, thanks H for a great introduction um, and for having me on this. So you have been a talented and and prolific producer in the movie business. Recently, I think you produced like nine films and TV shows in one year. And we're in an interesting time for the film business where it's really changing, right? Because of streaming first run features and COVID shutting down movie theaters and lots of other factors. Tell us a little bit about what it's like to produce movies in a COVID or or post-COVID world. I would say that producing movies in this post-COVID world, I mean, you know, honestly, as producers, we, and as somebody who was raised in production, you learn to go with the flow. And it was just another problem to put on the burner and say, okay, how are we going to handle this? So ultimately, it just gave us some, uh, you know, a couple more barriers to get through our day. But other than that, I don't think there's that much of a difference. And I think, you know, the, the industry has changed just dramatically in the past, um, you know, however many years. And everybody's trying to make a, you know, have bigger scope for less money. And that uh, seems to be the, you know, the narrative right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious, right? Because everybody talks about it being a tentpole business now, right? A tentpole economy. Do you find it challenging to produce interesting mid-budget films? Boy, I wish I'd been on a mid-budget film recently. I mean, <laughs> Borat certainly, you know, was in there, but um, you know, we we treat it like an indie, and right, right. Uh, you know, the Borat subsequent movie film. 
yeah, I mean, you either have to make, you know, it used to be that you could make indies for that sort of under 15 range, under 15 million. Yeah. And now that those same movies, they're asking to be under five. Um, and that's how the economy is working. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, it's hard to make a drama. Uh, Chicago 7, The Trial of Chicago 7 was something that I was an executive producer on. I didn't actually do anything except make a bunch of phone calls and make some introductions and uh, helped find their final piece of financing. But that was, you know, one of the very last films that was a big drama that, you know, was made for, and that wasn't even made for a huge budget, but um, it's just hard to do that now i mean i think a man called Otto was made for you know uh some money but you see that it didn't i actually sorry i will say that that movie did pretty well at the box office and has has i don't know if it's recouped or not do you know i don't know what the budget was on it but uh i i actually do know a little bit about it but it was bought as a negative pickup from sony so but sony I believe has done well on it and Got the it. financiers did well on it. A lot of people are talking about the fact that now you're either a tent pole or a low budget indie, that the middle has really been what's been, uh, uh, you know, hard to find, right. Is those middle, middle tier movies to get those finances much more challenging. Right. And what you're talking about is people saying, well, we'll make this movie, but we have to make it for less, right. We can't make it for more or for what it's actually budgeted at. We have to find a way to make it for less to justify it. Right. That's very true. And whereas you might have had, you may have had, you know, eight purchasers or eight buyers or eight places that you could distribute a movie like that. Now you have maybe two or three. Um, And so you can really count on one hand, the movies that are working in that mid range. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, let, let's talk about Borat for a minute. So, you know, you've interestingly enough produced uh, scripted features, now documentaries, and you've worked with Sasha Baron Cohen in a genre that somehow magically blends the two along with being hilariously funny. Tell us a little bit about producing those films and, and you know, what's your what's your best Borat story? I hear, I, I think you were arrested at some point, but, but what was it like to produce those movies? Well, I was arrested. I was actually in jail on the first Borat. So that was 2005. Uh, I met Sasha in 2004. So it's been a long, it was a long run. Um, But uh, yeah, I I got arrested for something silly. But, you know, essentially, I was in jail for 19 hours. And it was a great learning experience. Because what happened was, uh, we took that information. And then I was able to incorporate that to figure out how not to get anybody else arrested. <laughs> That's a good uh, a good skill set for a producer. Yeah. How do I not get my crew arrested, right? <laughs> and how not to get me arrested, um, which meant staying back at the hotel and not being, you know, who's in charge and somebody be able to point over there and say she is. Well, this is what's interesting, I think, too, about you guys rewrote a genre or, or you created a genre in a way, right, which means you're learning how to produce it for the first time because you know there's certain playbooks when you're producing a, a traditional scripted you know uh, you know scripted content or, or for that matter documentaries to a certain extent although documentaries sometimes you have to shift and 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 you know kind of run and gun it also but you know I'm curious like going into it because um, that was the first movie the first Borat movie um, you know obviously he had done the Ali uh, the Ali G show um, and and some some other you know projects but 
you know, how much did you guys sort of prepare ahead of time for what might have been some dicey situations? Or did you just kind of go into it and figure it out? Well, we definitely were, you know, very planned as much as we could. You know, we always plan as much as we can because we want, first off, we need Sasha to feel safe and that he can do what he needs to do and be in a space where he can feel that he can perform. So we wanted to make sure that the situations were safe enough. I'm not saying that when you go and interview, you know, alleged terrorists and things like that um, in the West Bank or, you know, in Jordan, uh, we, you know, you can, you can only make it as safe as possible and right. have some safe it's relative there. in those situations. Exactly. And have some, and have some backups and backup plans in place. But that was, that's always the case. You know, we would go with, you know, some, you know, when we're talking to a used car salesman is a very different planning strategy than, you know, something like going to the, the rally in Washington um, and, you know, with some neo-Nazis and other people that were there. Um, yeah. So, but, you know, we would always make sure, and I think the writer's room is really interesting, which I'm not a part of the writer's room, but, you know, they work out the scenarios and try to come up with what would this person say and how would this response go so that they can kind of come up with responses and thoughts and, and give Sasha an arsenal. Um, and Sasha can, you know, he's obviously the lead writer in there, but, you know, have an arsenal of thoughts that they can go in with and jokes and ideas that then yeah. he can go and do his improv. Uh, was there ever, was there ever a scenario that they wrote where you were like, how the heck am I going to help them pull this off? Like, were, were there any where you were like, okay, this is going to be seriously challenging always i mean like literally almost all of everything that's written every script that would come in i would take a deep breath read it (laughs) and think okay is this just going to fall fall by the wayside because it's just unproducible uh or unachievable and but my my approach is to never say no and was always to never say no and to think through the process and to and also if it's written, I can tell you that Sasha has already thought about all the different ways of getting in there and figuring it out. Right. So it just, you know, it needs conversations. And first, they need to have the creative flexibility to come up with the scenarios. And uh, and then we can all discuss it again and keep talking through it. And then ultimately, some of them... You know, I thought, oh, we're never finding a terrorist, for instance, like right, I discussed right. before. And, you know, we found two uh, that would <laughs> speak to us. Um, one walked away, uh, you know, one walked away when they were presented the consent form. Um, even even terrorists want their 15 minutes of fame. That's what yes, that goes to yes. show. Yes, and right? one, um, you know, the one we actually interviewed uh claims he is no longer a terrorist. Um, and so I don't know how that works, but uh, he was the one person who sued on Bruno. Um, so it was a very interesting experience, but it was uh, definitely something that took months and months and months and months and lots of consultants and people to advise us who would be a, um, who could be somebody safe 
right. but that we could engage with. That's really interesting. And I'm curious, have you had lawsuits on all of the films or, or have some of them uh, not yielded? It's got to be a bit of a badge of honor for Sasha in a way. Like if you're not getting sued, you're doing something wrong on a Borat film, I would think. Yeah. Or if you're not offending somebody, you're doing right. something wrong. That's right. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, listen, I didn't do The Dictator. I didn't do Grimsby. I'm quite right. sure he didn't have lawsuits on those. And um, But yeah, when you're in this unscripted world, uh, inevitably somebody's going to be upset. But we had yeah. very minimal on uh, both Bruno and on on the Borat subsequent movie film, and we had none in our TV specials that we did for Amazon uh, following, in the following year. Yeah. But I think, you know, the fact is, is that the TV show, I mean, the original movie had some lawsuits and we won all of them. And I think that was precedent. Yeah, you're doing it right. I'm curious. So your philosophy, never say no. I think this is an interesting philosophy for a producer. Where else have you had to kind of live by that credo? Have there been other challenges that on, on particular projects where you've thought, okay, I have to figure this out? Always. I mean, that's just how I was trained in the business. And so Certainly coming off of working with Sasha, it gave me, it buoyed me a little bit to say, well, if I could do that, I can figure this out. <laughs> I um, can do anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, one of the fun, a couple of the fun examples of that, one was working with Dan Fogelman on his directorial debut, which was called Danny Collins. And when I met with him, there was, you know, it's supposed to be about Al Pacino being an aging rock star. Right. And, uh, a la Neil Diamond or, you know, whoever. And, you know, we're supposed to set up his character before we go, before he goes to uh, in search of his son. And I said, well, what's the plan for that? And, you know, they were like talking about like a small arena maybe or a, a small venue of like 500 people. And I said, no, 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 no. We, we need like, we need a big venue. We need the Greek. We need the Hollywood Bowl. So I just started calling around and I actually was able to get the, um, the band Chicago to allow us to use their intermission and get their <laughs> audience add, you know, singing along to our song. And it was just such a fun night. And Al loved it so much. Pacino, I mean, Dan was, at, you know, over the moon, but Pacino actually, uh, said, oh my gosh, thank you for this wonderful night. And that was a great, a great end to that event. That's um, and you're on a first name basis with Al Pacino. So that's well, really the best end to that night. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> probably not now, but you know, that day. Um, and then, uh, and then there was another little movie that we did a couple of years ago with director Tara Mealy and it was amazing. Her, yeah, wander darkly. And we, she sat down with me one of our first meetings and she said, I know, I know was, you know, for the budget. Um, it was written this whole beautiful dolphin sequence. And she said, I know we're going to have to rewrite that to be a hike because we can't afford dolphins. And I was like, no, I think we can afford dolphins. And she's like, what do you mean? We don't have visual effects money. And I said, no, 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 I know a guy. And so we literally... <laughs> found this guy. I, I've, I had found him from TripAdvisor or something. And he would find dolphins every time he was out in the Santa Monica waters. 
And so I, we got on a boat and I said, let's just do a scout. And we, we said, let's bring a camera with us while we scout. And we found a pod of 40, you know, for 45 minutes, we followed the dolphins around and we continued to do that with Sienna Miller and with Diego Luna. We had to go twice, you know, twice again. And we found those dolphins and those dolphins were just out there in the bay and it was beautiful. And so that was another one where, you know. I, I feel like no, I feel no, like no. never saying no often collides with I know a guy. That yes. those, those two things go together in producing. Those are really the two tools of producing, yes. right? Hopefully, it's I know a girl, I know a person. Um, but yes, I hope we're we're moving into that world. But yeah, me too. The, me the too. general generality of I know someone. Well, we're going to talk about moving into the world of, of, of more inclusion and all that. But before we do that, I want to take you back in time because, you know, it is the name of our, our podcast after all. Um, you know, I'd love to hear about like your start of your career and what were your, your big break moment or moments? How did, how did you find your way to becoming a producer? I know you started in like ballet and tap classes, but something happened between then and now. <laughs> oh my God. I'm the worst. Um, I am not a dancer. Um, those were very early days. That was like when I was 10. Um, no, but I, you know what? I started in TV news out of I went to Syracuse University and I started in broadcast news and I was working for a TV production company in Washington, D.C., which is where I'm from. And then after a few years of that, I had gone on a couple behind the scenes shoots of, you know, to cover it for Entertainment Tonight, the Washington Bureau of Entertainment Tonight. We were handling those shoots and I went on a couple of you know, film sets. And I thought, wow, this is sort of what I want to do. I think this is what I want to do. I did. I just saw something else that was bigger than just being at, you know, um, at a small production company in DC. And I wanted to try something, try my hand at something else. So I quit my job and uh, didn't really have the money to do that. But I somehow just decided to do that and take a big, you know, take a big risk. Uh, and I interned for a couple of weeks, which was all I could afford at a, on a TV, uh, I'm sorry, on a feature. It was a Ron Howard feature, um, called the paper. And I remember that movie. Sure. Yeah. And how did you I, find the internship? Like not to get too granular, but I'm curious. I literally you- called every office on the production weekly, you know, when they list the production offices, Sure. I sat there and I called and there was a woman, um, Trish, who was an art department coordinator, and she answered the phone. She's now a great producer. But Trish answered the phone, and every time I called, she was very nice. And I finally said, can I just please come and intern for you and show you what I can do? And she said, fine, just come over. you know. And I was in D.C. She was in New York. So I was like, I'll be there tomorrow morning and jumped on a train and wow. went up there and left my, left my suitcase outside their door. Uh, and then found a, a couch to stay on for a couple of weeks in New York. And then uh, when so I this, couldn't this afford is like that. You, you, as a producer, never say no, but also like, you know, never accept no for an answer, right? Just right. keep keep making those phone calls and, and, and leaving your right. suitcase out the, outside the door, right? I knew that she was friendly and I could get to her, <laughs> you know? There were other people yeah. that just wouldn't answer or wouldn't respond, but she responded. So yeah. she took a chance and she was really sweet and took me, you know, and allowed me to come and work for her for free. Mm-hmm. And I did a really good job. And so 
I said, you know, will there be a job opening? Would you, you know, consider me? She said, why don't you call me in two weeks because the production supervisor's coming and we will need somebody, but it's going to behoove you to not be in the office and not be somebody that we're forcing on her. I said, great. So I went back to D.C., but I also saw that Pelican Brief was filming in D.C. And with my internship, where I got paid $50 one day to wait for the phone company, I said, okay, am I a PA? And they said, yes, you're a PA. I said, great. I put PA on my resume (laughs) for a Ron Howard movie in New York. And that's when the D.C. office called me for Pelican Brief and said, you just worked in New York on a Ron Howard movie? You're hired. Because in D.C., there are fewer options, right? I'm imagining in D.C., you don't have as many PA options. You had a PA credit on a a big movie. And so this is is a way to open the door, right? Now, okay, so you worked uh, on Pelican Brief with Alan J. Pakula, who was a phenomenal film producer and director. He produced uh, All the President's Men, Parallax View, and Clute, which is like the holy trinity of American conspiracy films. He directed those. Yeah, he directed directed, those. That's right. And, And I used to teach those films in another life as an NYU professor um, and and was a huge fan of his. Heard him speak right before he died in a crazily random and tragic accident. Uh, So what was it like working with him? Uh, He was such a gentleman. He was a gentleman of all gentlemen. He was the, you know, he, he was such a wonderful person for me to have my first film with. You know, I really saw the vestiges of old Hollywood, if you will. And um, yeah, he was really a lovely man also, not just a really great director, but a lovely man. And also we had to do the impossible on that movie. Um, So I joined them uh, for production starting in the Washington DC for the Washington DC portion. But then I went up to New York to do post-production with them as well. They brought me on as, as an assistant coordinator in post. And then when it came time to do a reshoot, we were reshooting Thanksgiving weekend and no one wanted to do that. So I said, I'm available. Yep. And since you've seen my... my I was movie, just going to say, uh, I, I, I just want to set up the stakes for our listeners that yes. Thanksgiving weekend is a big deal in the Levinson household. So you were it giving is. up a major family holiday. Major family like, holiday. This is my chance. Like nobody wants to work on Thanksgiving. I'll work on Thanksgiving, right? Yes. It was the only Thanksgiving I've ever missed at, in my, with my family. So I went off to Santa Barbara. We did this reshoot Thanksgiving weekend. And the movie, which was on film... And we had two editors working a 24-hour cycle, by the way, um, for the whole of post because we had to finish it in time for a Christmas release, the week before Christmas it released. So imagine we did a reshoot on film uh, the weekend of Thanksgiving. Like a month before it it was going to be released. (laughs) Yes. Put it into the film, screened it. Uh, I will tell you this wonderful story of him, his, I... There was a mix-up with my credit, and when we screened it, right after we did the reshoot, we screened the movie in our screening room on film, because that's how we were working, my credit was wrong, and it said 
office secretary or something like that Ooh. instead of what it should have been. Right. Office right. secretary is just really bleh, Nobody, too. nobody wants that credit. Uh, and no. you know what? I mean, it's, it's an interesting moment of like gendered workforces, right? Like yes. just the word secretary connotes a certain thing, right? Exactly. And it's exactly. not really used anymore either, by the way, because a secretary is essentially the same thing as an assistant, but there was right. this gendered understanding of, of, of that role. It's really exactly. interesting. Yeah. So, um, and there were, I guess, a couple other mix-ups on the credits, but I didn't know that. And so I said something to my friend, his assistant, who was sitting next to me. I was like, oh, did you see that? And I, you know, but then, you know, I was like, great, movie's so wonderful, very exciting. So I started to walk down the stairs at this space in New York, and Alan comes running after me. He goes, Monica, Monica. And I was like, hi, Alan, the movie's so great. I'm so proud to have worked on it. And it's it's wonderful. And congratulations. And he said, I hear your credits wrong. We're going to reshoot the credits. Now, reshooting the credits takes a bit because there's typesetters. There are all these things that were happening back in 90. It's not typing it into a computer. For, for right. all the Zillennials among us, because we have lots of Zillennial listeners, uh, so this was in the days when you didn't just go into an Avid or whatever and type the credit in. You had to actually uh, reset the credits, right? Reset and reshoot at the cost yeah. of about $7,500 back in 93. So yeah. I sa- he said, we're going we're gonna to redo it so your credit's right. And I said, Alan, you cannot do that. It's fine. It's fine. We don't have the time. It's fine. He said, you've worked too hard. I will not allow you to have the wrong credit on this movie. And that was just like setting me up for, you know, thinking everybody in this industry is kind and good hearted <laughs> and wonderful. And also led, set a good example for me about how to be That's and right. who That's I right. wanted to be in this industry. That's right. Um, so anyway, he did change it and he was just lovely. Anyway, uh, yeah, so that was my first job in film. And and I started from there just working in production. And soon after, I guess I worked in New York for a good four years. And I moved up the ranks pretty quickly. I thought I was going very slowly. But I moved up and I was production supervising on the Howard Stern movie by, you know, 96. Private parts, right? Yep, private parts, which was a joy to work on. And I worked with this woman, Celia Costas, who uh, was the production manager and then line producer on those movies that I did in New York, including Pelican Brief. Um, And then she started saying, you know, you need to move on. And I started feeling also that I didn't want to move on in New York. I wanted to be where I was, I was working with the best of the best, the cream of the crop in a small pond. Yeah. But I wanted to work in the bigger pond. I wanted to be where I could be there at the impetus of storytelling as opposed to taking whatever was coming into New York after it's been developed, after they've cast the movie, after everything, then they bring it to New York and they come to the project late. So you have less creative input, right? For sure. Yes. Um, I wanted to be able to have that input. And I knew that I had to do that by moving to Los Angeles or working in independent film in New York, which was not the world I knew. I only knew these big budget movies at this time. And so I was trained in that world and I didn't know that I, I didn't even know that independent film was a thing that 
would be interesting to me at the time. So I moved yeah. to LA and didn't work for a couple of years because, <laughs> you know, I mean, I worked a little bit because Celia would hire me to go back or go on right. the road. And, and then Zoolander really was one of those breakthroughs where she ended up bringing me back to New York for that. And, and then Celia so, did. you were still yeah, working Celia. on that film, right? Yes. And um, even though I had been living in LA for a couple of years, they brought me back to New York and Celia one day just said, there's so much other stuff going on. We have all these other units. We don't know what we're doing with them. So you can either be a production manager with me on the main unit, or you can be in charge of all those other units that are not budgeted. And we have no idea how to do. And I said, I want that part. I want the latter. I want to go work on all those other units and I will figure it out. So it was shooting live at the VH1 Fashion Awards. It was doing the male model of the year packages on Zoolander for, right. for those VH1 fashion awards. It was the still unit, you know, they had a, a crime, crime photos that we had to do. There was just a whole bunch of things that just the brainwashing sequence. There was just, and I, I think, you know, again, just because takeaway is so important to some of our listeners or, or, or a lot of our listeners, I think, you know, the choice you made there was I'm going to go with the job. That's, that's the thing that, 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 you know, is harder and that maybe isn't the thing that everybody else wants to do, right? Uh, everybody wants to be with that main unit, you know, and, 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 you know, the shining star and all that. But you're like, hey, all this stuff has to get done. Nobody knows how it's going to get done. So I can make my mark. I can show people that I can do all of this without a lot of resources. And suddenly I become indispensable, right? Absolutely. Well said. Uh, I wish I had said that, uh, but no, but <laughs> nice summary. Um, no, but that's, that's okay. exactly. We'll, we'll do it in the edit. It'll be fun. <laughs> yes. Just make it my voice. We have AI, right? Um, so I, exactly. I mean, I chose that path and I knew from my TV news days that I was scrappy and I could figure this out. I also, because in TV news, I was shooting digital anyway. Yeah. I also understood that world that was not common in 2000 when we were shooting that movie. And uh, so I went out and, you know, did some tests with digital cameras. We were doing, uh, I had to do the big billboards that were out in the city that were ad campaigns that Derek and Hansel were in and Mugatu. Um, And so it was really creative and it was fun. And uh, it was what I wanted to do. The Teamsters though called me Madam Bowfinger because (laughs) they said uh, for the Zillennials, that's what you're calling them. um, For those that don't know, Bowfinger is a movie that, uh, you know, mostly was about a ad hoc crew that would steal things uh, from the equipment lockers in the middle of the night and go shoot a movie uh, and everything was stolen. But that's basically the Teamster was like, Teamsters would say, Monica, what do you need tomorrow? I'm like, I need nothing. I need nothing. I'm not going to uh, use any of your resources. Don't worry. And then I'd show up the next day and say, I just need that truck and that steak bed and just some grip equipment from that truck and I'm good. And they'd say, gosh, if you would just tell us, we'd bring on another driver. I'm like, no, 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 I can't afford no, that. No, 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 no. That's like me and my CTO. I'm like, I don't need any engineering help right now, except for this and this and this. Exactly. Uh, well, this exactly. is actually a good moment for me to sound like my mother and say, 
what does a producer do anyway? Um, film and TV are incredibly collaborative, um, and there are a lot of different kinds of producers. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do as a producer and, and the role you've essentially um, evolved into and, and developed for yourself, right, by making these kinds of choices that we've been talking about. Well, I think one major part of my job is to make sure that the creative ends up on screen, whether that's the big screen, the small screen, streaming screens, yep. screens, whatever it is, um, to make sure that happens. And sure. uh, but it's also just being part of the whole process. And you know, from beginning to end, there are a lot of different kinds of producers and. Like, for instance, what I said for Chicago 7, that was the only time I got to be one of those producers who just makes a few phone calls and gets right. a credit. Uh, it was such an exciting those moment Those producers in my are time. magical. They're the magical producers. Yes. <laughs> the the was, money people, right? Yes. I was really <laughs> excited to be that person. I felt, you know, very powerful to get a credit for doing what That's I awesome. would think of in my uh, in most days as doing a lot of nothing. Uh, sure. Usually it's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. But es essentially it's, you know, on my end, it's cultivating the creative. It's helping work with the writer. It's finding the writer for a project. Um, if you're finding the IP and then you need to find a writer, I mean, you can go back to day one. Uh, and then it's trying to find the financing, uh, finding who's going to be the distributor, uh, and then just working with hiring the director or working with the director to make sure that the vision is accomplished. And yeah. so that's just like everything from... It's, it's the know, best job in the world, really. I, I love it because I get to be hands-on and yeah. that's what I love about the business. I didn't come into this business to make phone calls only. Yeah, um, exactly, exactly. You know, I, I like being involved. I like being on set. I like being in the edit room. I like being on that sound mix stage and I like to be in the color correct. And I like to be in the research screenings and know what the audience is thinking. Yeah. Um, and I like to be at those premieres and yeah, that's, that's, a good that's the, too, right? the process. And, uh, but you know, the premiere is the quote unquote glamorous side that happens once every, you know, however often you make a movie or right. you launch something. And so you can't do it for the premieres, you know, yeah. you're doing it That's because right. you love the work. And, and I, by the way, the premieres uh, uh, are getting uh, smaller and, 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 and more cost effective anyway. So, <laughs> Oh, totally. I mean, you know, when we did, uh, well, Borat, for instance, we just, you know, we were just uh, a launch of a button, but it was right. a big launch because obviously Sasha put so much into the marketing. Um, but that's, that's the other thing about the new world of streaming is that, you know, you used to be able to go and sit in the theaters and see how the audiences were reacting. Yeah. I would go and just theater hop uh, opening weekend or during the week just to see how audiences were reacting. That's, were reacting. that's changed a lot. I mean, so tell us a little bit about your latest project with Bill Burr, because I understand that audience testing actually changed that film a little bit. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think, Bill is incredible, uh, smart, funny guy, um, but really smart and knows his audience. And I think just hearing the 
you know, being able to hear the audience yeah. was the most important part of that. And process. obviously this was a comedy. It was a, a, co- a yes, comedy film. Exactly. So you can hear the audience, dads. right? Yep. Yeah. Huddle Dads and uh, Miramax financed it and they were wonderful partners. And we are in the process of a sale. Uh, that's great. So we'll talk about it right now. But Mazel Tov, be, that's exciting. Yes. In a, in a great place for it. It's actually where it should be. And um, so we're really, we're really thrilled. But yeah, listening to always with comedies, hearing the audience and hearing where there's lulls and hearing where they're responding or hearing where there's laughs, especially laughs, makes or breaks the comedy. And yeah. we're able to use that data and use what we heard you know we always record the audience so we can hear it and play it back in the edit room yeah and know what's working and what wasn't yeah that's really interesting and you know and and i think what's really interesting about your career in particular is that you've worked on a really diverse array of projects from you know dramas like wander darkly and trumbo to obviously the borat films and zoolander and and bill burr's project how do you not get pigeonholed? How have you managed to have such a diverse career in terms of the types of projects you've worked on? Um, you know, a lot of times in this business, people get, you know, sort of pigeonholed into this is what you do, right? How have you managed to keep such a, a, a an interesting career going? If you had asked me 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I would have different responses looking back at my career. I see the diversity, but at many places in my career, people would tell me, well, you don't really do this. Or just because you did that, it doesn't necessarily translate to what we're doing over here. So, um, you know, you you still came up against that. Like that's, of course, I mean, you're always at every, yeah, at every step of the way. I mean, you know, it's nice to be able to look back and go, oh, you did okay. You know, (laughs) you made it through some of those ceilings. Yeah. Um, But ultimately, one of the things that really helped me was doing Dan Fogelman's movie because Dan Fogelman's movie was one that was a dramedy. And uh, he, he and I clicked when we met and um, it was a small movie, but I, you know, I mean, actually it wasn't that small compared to today's numbers, but it was a, it was, you know, a smaller budget and the financier was new in the business. And I ended up uh, continuing to work with her, Shivani Rowett and Shifan's pictures. And I worked with them for six or seven years. Um, and ran day to day in the LA office. And we did, I think, 10 movies together. That's a long time to be somewhere. That's a lot of projects to do. Yes, Uh, and and we were choosing those projects. So- um, Very exciting. Comedy wasn't really up her alley as much um, and what she wanted to do. And so that's where I got to, you know, sort of flex my muscles on, the more dramatic movies and yeah. and have those opportunities. So Captain Fantastic, for instance, was one of those first scripts that I read as we formed this company, as she formed the right. company and I was joining her. And it was something that I loved so much. And we were able to, you know, we spoke about it and she said, okay, let's do it. And so we went and we financed and produced that movie. Um, and so that sort of started the 
world and also Trumbo was in the hopper and I had worked with Jay Roach um, on comedies. He had produced um, Ford and Bruno and I was uh, with him on those. So when he was doing Trumbo, it just seemed like a good match. That's Uh, great. How, how important are mentors? Like, you know, how important have mentors been to your career and how important do you think they are in terms of the advice you would give to a young producer coming up in the business? I think mentors are really important. I had two, maybe three. I mean, I had a lot of mentors because people were willing to spend the time and speak to me and take my phone call and give me some advice when I needed it. So you don't always need just one mentor, I think. And you don't have to just burn out one mentor. You can use a whole bunch of people, you know, and as you meet people, just you don't have to decide that they're your mentor right then and there. Um, it's just about asking questions and being open and hearing their answers because everybody has a different perspective. And my perspective now, looking back at my career, is very different than when I was in the midst of every decision. Sure. And, uh, you know, it was helpful to speak to people who had perspective. And well, so, and I think the other piece yeah. of it is, is is always be available to work Thanksgiving weekend because one of the things about yeah. those relationships is you showed them your commitment and your your medal, right? And then, and then that makes them want to mentor you, right? Absolutely. I, I needed to show what I was worth and I needed to show that I would do whatever it would take and that I was willing to be there when the times got tough. And so I think once people saw that they were willing to, you know, go out of their way for me as well. Who were some of your key mentors? Were most of them women? I'm curious if, if women tended to be who you gravitated to as a mentor. Yeah, so Celia Costas, definitely. Um, and she still is somebody we we mentor each other now. Uh, and she's somebody I can call and she calls me all the time. And we, you know, we have a great relationship that way. That's Stuart great. Kornfeld, um, who was Ben Stiller's producing partner for um, about 20 years, he was wonderful to me and also gave me my first producing credit by calling me an associate producer on Zoolander and and just, you know, would always be somebody that would answer the phone and speak to me and help me. And, and uh, he passed away in 2020, but he was a great friend. And, uh, and I got to work with him on five different projects, four different projects. Um, I would say Betty Thomas was wonderful. She would, she would answer the phone and talk to me. Uh, I did two movies with her, uh, Danny Goldberg, who was the producer on the private, on private parts. He was great to me. I mean, so there's just a, you know, and, and now, you know, my dear friend, Amy Bear, for instance, she's practically a mentor, even though, you know, we're colleagues and, uh, we were producing partners, but it was nice to be able to have somebody, you know, it's always nice to have somebody to speak to. And I think sounding boards, right? There there are mentors where maybe they're more advanced in an aspect of of the industry and you can look to them for advice and insight, but also sometimes it's people who are your colleagues or who are just people you came up with. You just need that sounding board, that that absolutely yeah my best friend jamie martin is that person as well you know we'll bounce things off of each other all the time and we started i met her on pelican brief and you know we've worked together on several different projects but she is in television and and now that i'm sort of engaging in the television world she is somebody that i can speak to and, and get advice and hear her perspective 
So yeah, and honestly, I do. I try to be that person for anyone who, uh, as much as I can, I try to be a mentor or a sounding board because I know how invaluable it is. For sure. I'm curious, you know, obviously you're on the board of women in film and a number of other professional organizations. What are some of the ways you see our industry attempting to, to, to do a better job, to be more inclusive, to try and diversify who's having opportunities, uh, you know, in, in film and TV? Well, first, I love that there's not just women in film out there. There's right. all these other um, you know, groups that are out there that have formed that are all working to better our industry and better our numbers yeah. and make sure that there are more opportunities for everyone, you know, and yeah. uh, I'm not trying to exclude anybody because I want there to be a balanced group of people and there's talent everywhere. Um, yeah, so for sure. And I, I should think- mention Women in Film is one of our partners and a number of the other groups that you just, uh, you know, uh, mentioned yes. or gestured to are, are also partners of Hustle Up. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, we're so excited to talk to you today, as I know that's an important, you know, uh, uh, mission for you in this business. It is. And I think Women in Film has done a really great job of also um, taking a look ever since I've been on the board it's been examining where we are and what we need to do to further those causes and what programs we can put in place to help diversify and help, um, you know, make the, also with, you know, make the industry more gender, gender equality, you know, have more gender yeah. equality. Um, so I think that there's, uh, I, I'm, proud to be part of women in film and the fact that it is not a stagnant organization that it is ever evolving and ever exam self-examining um and i think that's really important because you know as the numbers change we need to pivot also and i see that within the dga um which i'm a member i see that they're working uh towards that. Um, the PGA is doing it. Ampus, you know, I'm a member of the Academy as well. And uh, they're also working on initiatives. So I think that it being a priority is the first step, you know, and we're, we're probably years away from being um, completely equal, you know, in the industry or, or balanced, I should say, gender and diversified. Um, but, uh, I think we're making those steps, you know, I think composers 3% are women and I, I I don't know what the percentage is for people of color, but I think it's pretty low. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We still have a lot of work to do. (laughs) We do, we do, but that's why all these organizations are necessary. And we always talk about when will women in film not be necessary? Yeah. Like, you know, that's our goal for women in film not to be a necessary organization. You recently co-directed your first feature, which is a doc about your own family. Uh, Tell us about the stories of us. Yeah. So uh, this is a documentary. It was inadvertent, to be honest with you. Um, And it was, I just went home with a video camera in 2008 to record a Thanksgiving dinner. And came out of that with three hours or four hours of footage from dinner and our morning activities, um, talking to my family about who they were and their stories and 
and my grandparents and, you know, how they came to the country and all these different, you know, things that made up my family history. And I brought it home and I put it in a cabinet and never saw those those tapes again. And then my uncle uh, at his 85th birthday said, hey, where's that footage? And that was like nine years later. And I said, <laughs> oh, uh, I'll have something for you before you're 86. And I ran home and I called my friend, my dear friend, Stephen Henches, um, who co-directed this with me. And we put together something for my family that year. And I had to go back and shoot some more footage in 2017. And then I showed it to the family, put it away. And then over the, you know, during the pandemic, things were just pretty grim. And yeah. I also felt that everything I was watching was pretty grim. And I wanted to put something out in the world that was happy and that was just light and and something that um, spoke to me and spoke to about unity and family. And so I kind of and celebrated your Jewish heritage, right? Yes, that was and also there also. was so much anti-Semitism still going on, uh, insanely back in the fray. Um, but so yeah, I just wanted to put something out there. So I talked to Stephen, and we started converting it for something that could possibly go out in the world. Shot more footage, and um, it's very homegrown. You know, I never intended it to do to be anywhere. I mean, I took you know my own little camcorder and just followed the conversation by myself. Nobody else shot it, so uh, it's it's very personal. Um, and we were able to launch it at the Annapolis Film Festival last year in 2022, and then uh, we worked with um, a distributor to get it out on Amazon on pay-per-view. So it's on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, um, and today it launched on Tubi. So it's it's out there, and it's really exciting. It was that was also a producing feat because I thought, okay, I want to put this out in the world, and somehow right. I did. Somehow yeah. I licensed music. I found a composer. I I directed, you know, co-directed it with Stephen, and um, you know, we were able to do all the stuff that I never thought that. I would be able to do, you know, that just didn't come into my, you know, vocabulary before directing. And now I'm a directing member of the DGA. That's pretty fantastic. That yeah. must have felt good. That was a good yeah, moment. It's, it's cool. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, like how much the business has changed, though, that, you know, when you were starting in this business in the early 2000s, that um, distribution was something that was uh it was exclusionary, right? I mean, there were a certain yes. number of screens, there were a certain number of TV channels. Um, you know, YouTube didn't exist as millennials. Um, uh, and, and, you know, now you're able to say, Hey, we want to distribute this film on as many platforms as we can. So as many people as possible can see it. And you're able to do those deals across all of these streaming platforms where, they all have this film available for an audience. I mean, that's got to be an interesting moment for you to realize like the, the, the way you can distribute this very personal project is so different from 20 or 25 years ago. I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic that I was able to, I didn't even think about trying to sell it, quote unquote. Yeah. I just went to a distributor and said, how do I put this out there? I didn't go through a sales technique or a sales agency. I, I had spoken to so many people who said, it's just so hard to sell a documentary. <laughs> so yeah. Then I don't need to, you know, right. I'm just going to self-distribute this and right. put it out there. 
um, and with the help of a distributor who, you know, was able to, and, and there's these distributors that do this. Right. Um, and yeah. as long as the platforms approve the creative or approve the actual product. So right. I did have to go through approval processes at iTunes and Amazon. You can't just put anything up there. Sure. Although we see that some people just put things out there. Um, there's those documentaries that yeah. I thought, well, if Amazon doesn't allow me to put this out there, but they put some of those other yeah. projects out there. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, yes, so, but right. no, it's really nice that they were, that we were approved and that we were able to put something out there that, um, you know, now my family, it's a love letter to my family, clearly. Right. And my family is very proud and feels really cool that there's this movie about them out in That's the world. Awesome. That's really awesome. Tell us a little bit about um, becoming an in-house producer at Color Force. Tell us about where you are right now and what you're working on. Yeah. So I joined in at the end of September, early October, I joined Color Force, which is Nina Jacobson and Brad Simpson's company, um, their production company. And they have a deal with FX for their television. And so I came in uh, as an in-house producer to be across TV and some film. And um, and it's great. I'm, I did this, you know, I, I started talking to Nina about... Who's amazing. Who's she's just amazing. amazing. I mean, she's, you know... You guys should look her up. She's super cool. Um, anyway, so she and I met on a Zoom about a year ago, and she was looking for somebody to be a non-writing executive producer on one of their TV shows. That project didn't work out, and we spoke on another project, and that one didn't work out either. And she finally said, well, what about coming in-house? And so I met with uh, she and Brad, uh, and we spoke about it, and and here I am. So it's are. great. I'm working on several, you know, it's just great learning from them, the TV world. Yeah. Um, I watch so much television and I have my entire life. Like me too. I had yeah. to, I had to educate myself on film, but TV, forget it. I knew, you know, I know a lot of TV, uh, and that's been my, you know, that was always my love. So what getting, are you working on right now that you're most excited about in terms of projects for, well, for there's FX a project, um, called say nothing, which, uh, I'm not sure that it's been announced fully. So I'm not sure I can say much about it. I can say nothing about say nothing. Well, that's um, good. Then, then yeah. we'll just keep an eye out for it. We'll, yes. we'll uh... <laughs> do so. But yeah. Um, and there's and that's, a that's presumably going to be on FX or, or elsewhere. Hulu FX. Yes. Great. Um, great. Yeah. I don't know when you're releasing this. So they, I think they're putting out a press release soon or they're getting ready for one, but I'll be heading nice. to the UK. Uh, to, you know, oversee some of that shoot. And uh, we have some other projects here, just, you know, three active television projects right now and a couple films. And so That's it's exciting. nice. I'm still able to bring um, my indie film world knowledge here and help them. And uh, But Brad Simpson also came from the indie film world, so yeah. he's certainly very knowledgeable too. Okay, it's a great best, place though. Yeah. That's great. I'm, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm um, happy to be here. Best career advice you've ever gotten. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I will say that 
one of the best pieces of advice I've gotten was actually from my father. Um, because when I was just starting out and I had quit that job and I was so driven and I was so freaked out that I just left behind a job that was steady. And this was the um, job in news, right? When this you made was my that TV break. job. Yeah. yeah. My, my TV news job. And, um, I was just what perplexed and what am I going to do for the rest of my life? And also feeling sort of like a loser because I was 25 and didn't have a job and didn't have a career and didn't yeah. know what I was going to do. And yeah. I had turned down law school because I thought, you know, I'm going to stick with. See, I actually loser. went and then didn't practice. So right. you're like $80,000 a year ahead of, of right. where I wound up. Well, that's but- what my thought, my, I had gotten advice from other people saying, don't go to law school if you don't want to be a lawyer. Right. And right. Um, I didn't, I almost went and they were like, how are you going to pay off? You're going to have to pay off your loans with being a lawyer. Being a lawyer. And yeah. I said, oh, I can't, I don't want to do that. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, but my father said, I said to him, I just don't know what I want to do for the rest of my life. And he said to me, and he was about my age that I am now, and he said, well, I don't know what I want to do for the rest of my life. And my <laughs> father was always the most stable person that I'd ever met. You know, he's had a lamp store. He's still, you know, 81 years old, still has a lamp store. Um, but so we had always done the same thing. So I was like, yeah. what do you mean? I thought I needed to find my career and I should have had it at 25. You needed to find your be- lamp store, right? Yes, I needed yeah. to know what my lamp store was. And he said, no, no, no. I've had to change, you know, he had gone through, you know, financial instability with the lamp store. He changed the way that he sold lamps. He got rid of one store, opened up a different kind of store. One was discount. One was full price. You know, he brought lamps into a, in the middle of the, those times, he brought lamps into a whatever. I mean, it's not as, you know, basically he changed it up all the time. He had to pivot because- He's constantly innovating, right? Yes, he had to. And he said, and if you don't, you're going to fall behind because the your business is going to change just like every other business changes. And if you're not ready to pivot and pick up and go or make changes, then you're not going to be successful. So keep a couple dollars in your pocket because, you know, I can't support you. But, you know, when <laughs> you on lamps. But, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Unless you want to come in house. Um, yeah. He's like, I can't support you, but, you know, you need to go off and try new things and right. don't be afraid to take a jump or take a leap. Right. And with that, um, a big brick went off my shoulder and yeah. I said, okay, I'm going to do that. You know, I didn't yeah. feel that same, you know, uh, pressure to succeed in well, one those specific words, career. Even if it's not financial support, those words are incredibly supportive from a parent, right? Because there are lots of parents out there who struggle to say, yeah, go go find your dream, go figure it out, right? Yes. It's scary I had parents. all, as you, you know, see from the stories of us, I had all the love and support in the world. And yeah. that was all I needed to, you know, yeah. make my way. Yeah. I want to switch it up now quickly. We have a few minutes left. I want to talk to you about the TV and films you love to watch. Um, What are you watching right now? I am watching Shrinking on Apple. Me too. We're obsessed with Shrinking. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I love it. I wish Harrison Ford were my shrink. Uh, (laughs) And that, I don't know what that says about me because he's a bit curmudgeonly on the show, but. uh, He's like uh, a guru. He's a life coach. Yes. Yeah. 
I'm watching, I don't know, I watch things so quickly, I go through them. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's things that you just turn on. Uh, I can't get enough of Love is Blind. It's terrible. I wish I didn't. Oh, I, it's Monica. the only They've reality I watch. I know. It's a very addictive format. It's, it it's one of the few it's... new formats in the last, say, three to five years. It's actually really sticky. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a winner. Totally. Uh, for better, I'm for excited better or worse, for... as they say. Yes, exactly. Um, and I take my voting privileges very seriously Yeah. in yeah. every way that I get to vote. So That's I right. watch every nominated film. I watch it. I try to watch every film before nomination period so that I can nominate with knowledge. That's great. Um, so I really do take I, use. I, I want all Academy members to be listening to this. This is, yes. this, you're throwing down the gauntlet. I love it. I love that. I do. Um, I watched to Leslie way before the, you know, the hype started. That's right. On yeah, Andrea, now, but now because everybody... I'm a, yeah, I'm a big Andrea fan, but um, that was absolutely one of, you know, anything that's on that Academy website, I'm watching. That's cool. That's really cool. Um, which film or TV talent that you ha- or who you haven't worked with do you wish you were working with? Like somebody who you're like, oh my God, I would love to do a project with this person. Oh gosh. I mean, there's so many people that I think are incredibly talented. This is um, the moment where you mentioned whoever you're pursuing right now and you're like, you know who? <laughs> Well, listen, I'm not pursuing this person, but Phoebe Waller-Bridge is uh, yeah. brilliant, and I would love to work with her. Um, you know, I've been really lucky in my career. I've gotten to work with really cool people, yeah. and, you know, from Larry David to Ben Stiller to Sasha um, to Betty Thomas and and uh, Pacino and, you know, Pakula and Sidney Lumet, um, Michael Mann. You know, it's been – I've been really fortunate to have – uh, great experiences and work with really cool people. So uh, I hope that just continues. But yeah, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, little Jason Bateman wouldn't be bad. Um, I think he's great. And I think he's great I love too. what he chooses. Um, yeah. yeah. And Ozark was fantastic and, and fantastic. fantastic up until the end. I was like, oh, are they going to be able to see it all the way through? And yes, they did. Exactly. Um, exactly. The film you can watch over and over again. I mean, like you own it on DVD so you can queue it up day or night. This is an odd one, but it's Lars and the Real Girl. Really? Because the humanity. I like stories of humanity. I like when people behave in a certain way that makes your heart sing. And that speaks to me. And Lars and the Real Girl is a is an indie spirit version of that uh, that um, sort of captures what I'm saying, you know, what that humanity is. And then also of my movies, I just love Captain Fantastic as well. Great just, movie. Yeah. Love watching that. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, I, I think that's actually the perfect note to leave this on because uh, humanity is really what we should all be aiming for in everything we touch and produce and create. Um, I want to thank you for sharing your story of your big break and your your career at large with us, Monica. You've been such a, 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 a prolific and talented and, and varied producer. It's super inspiring. So we really appreciate you being here. Thanks, H. So sweet of you to have me. And I really appreciate it. And I love talking to you. Yeah, me too. We're going to do it in person with a cocktail very soon. Great. Um, And for our listeners, be sure to join Hustle Up to connect with Monica on our app. 
That's it for this episode of Hustle Up's The Big Break. Please join us for future episodes featuring production company CEOs, producers, writers, directors, and more. Our theme music for this episode was composed by Hustle Up member Lewis Robert King. We thank you for listening and let's hustle up. Hustle Up.